Thank you guys for being here. I got I to gotta tell you how much I appreciate being at Gateway today because Gateway is one of those churches that does um, walks the walk, you know? Um, you guys have a lot of events coming up, uh, things that you are involved in. There's a respite night coming up for um, uh, kids with disabilities. Um, you've done respite nights for foster families before. Um, and I appreciate that this is a church that wrestles with the questions of what do we do? You know, not what, what do we do in the community? What kind of mark do we want to make? What kind of impact do we want to have in the world around us? And that is so just huge. It's so huge. And it says a lot about your pastors. It says a lot about your leadership. It says a lot about who you are, um, that that's part of your story. Um, like uh, Pastor Bobby said, I am a worship leader here locally. I have uh, a guitar and a beard, and those are the two main qualifications to be a worship leader. So um, that's, that's very important. My name is Jeff Steele. Um, like he said, I have been in this area for 16 years. I've lived in West Michigan now, originally from Ohio. Um, we, were, we were connecting, me and Bobby were connecting on our Ohio roots here a little bit. Um, and uh, this is one of those places in the country that you uh, tend to stay. So I... Um, I'm at a, a church in Grand Haven, um, where I've been the worship pastor there for about a year. Before that, I was at a church in Muskegon um, for several years, and before that, I was at a different church in Grand Haven for several years. I still live in the same house um, that we bought, and uh, lived in that house for 14 years, been here for 16 years. It's a weird kind of thing. Most of my pastor friends from seminary, from Bible college, um, they tend to move around a lot. They go from Arizona to Virginia to Kentucky to Florida, wherever the church is. And in West Michigan, you see that happens, but you also see a lot of pastors who stay in the area, which is, it's kind of unique. So, you know, I moved here 16 years ago. I met a girl. Uh, I married her, and now I'm stuck, right? <laughs> I'm stuck here because she's a Holland girl, you know? Yeah, she's Holland, Dutch, tulip time. I don't get it, but hey. Um it's, uh, you know, so this is our home, and this is our community now. So several years ago, probably 10 or so years ago, um, I was working as a worship pastor, and um, one of the things that we liked to do was to occasionally go to a church that had a Saturday night service so that we could go as a family. And um, that's really cool. When you're in leadership and you're up here on the platform a lot, it's nice to just come and sit and be a part of uh, the gathering and not have to, you know, present all the time. So we used to do that from time to time, and there was a church in Holland that we used to go to that had a Saturday night service, and um, there was one particular weekend we went down there. We had one uh, child. My son was, you know, I, I think he was about a year and a half old, and um, I remember the pastor made a comment. They were doing a, a series about foster care and adoption, much like you are uh, now in, in th this month, and um, he made a comment. It was just kind of an offhanded comment and said, you know, there's this many thousand kids in foster care. There's this many thousand churches in Michigan. Shouldn't really be that hard. And it was kind of one of those moments that my wife and I were both sitting there and we both kind of went, huh. You know that moment? You ever have that where the pastor's talking and you're just kind of listening and, and then all of a sudden he says something and you kind of go, huh. It's... Um, I call it like a seed, and I think that God uses those kind of moments to plant a seed in us, and it's something that 
takes a little while to develop, right? When you plant a seed, it doesn't come up right away. Um, it takes a little bit of time and a little bit of care. And for us, it was a seed that was planted in us. And it took a, uh, probably about four or five years for that seed to grow until there was a time that it was right for us to say, yeah, I think it's time we do something about that. I was in seminary at the time. I had gone back to school to, to uh, do my master's degree. And uh, we had two kids now. My, my kids are five years apart. My biological, um, my two oldest biological kids are five years apart. And uh, that's great. We, w- we had one child for five years. He was an only child. And we never had any intention of having any more kids. Because you know what you can do with one kid? Anything you want. <laughs> Anything. I'm not kidding. You know who will take your one kid? Anybody. <laughs> Anybody. Grandma, grandpa, no problem. Drop them off, great. Leave them for the weekend. Have fun. That's what you can do with one kid. It's beautiful. Beautiful. We loved it. So <coughs> we had a second child, and, um, and uh, there was five years in between, and, and we thought, well, you know, let's, um, maybe we have room for another child here. In between. I mean, we've got a five-year span. Maybe I, I've heard, remember, I had that seed planted in me, that there are kids that are older kids who need homes. And so maybe we could provide one for a child, you know, kind of between those two ages. One, maybe two, maybe two. We'll see. Um, you know, the house, uh, you know, is not, not a huge house. You know, we have three bedrooms, and okay, we can, we can make that work. And um, so that was kind of how we got started. That's how we got involved. And starting to walk down that path, starting to ask those questions, what does adoption look like? We actually got steered towards the foster care end of things, which is not really what we intended, but it's where we ended up, and we ended up really um, enjoying that and, and being a part of that. So for the last five years, that's what we've been doing. And I like to say that I used to be a really great ambassador for foster care. Um, and I say that because we had two kids, and then we took our first couple of placements, and they were younger, and, uh, and we would show up to church with one or two extra kids, and they would all be running around, and people would say, wow, those are, f- who's, who, uh, first of all, who are the kids? Um, and we would t- tell them who they are, and they'd say, wow, that's, th- that's not what I expected. Those are just kids. And we're like, yeah, they're just kids. We're like, well, they're like, they're like normal kids. Like, yes, that's the point. They're just kind of like normal kids. You know, well, I expected foster kids, you know, foster kids. I expected they would be like, you know, they'd come in with matches and lighters and be like trying to burn the place down or something like that, you know, like this is trouble. And it's like, no, that's, you know, that's the point. That's the point. They're just kids. And they got a bad deal. But it wasn't their fault. It wasn't anything that they did. It's just they got a bad deal. And they just need someplace safe to be for a while. And, and so, like, we used to do that. And um, people would see us, and they would see our family out and about, and they would say, yeah, you know, that's cool. Like, I could do that. Um, I have to add the disclaimer now, because now it's been five years, and um, we've had 30 different foster care placements over the last five years. Um, We've adopted three of them, and uh, we had another baby along the way, and we still have three foster kids. So, um, yes, that's nine kids at home for anybody who's doing the math. So when I, no, 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 no. <laughs> when I roll up in the 15-passenger van and all the kids start piling out, 
People don't say, wow, that's cool. They say, whoa. <laughs> that's what they say now, whoa. And no longer do people say, oh, yeah, that's awesome, I could do that. Now they say, no way, no way that I would ever want to do that. And I totally get that. Um, it's part of the deal, you know? And, and actually, th they say there are a lot of people who have a lot more self-control than we do. They have a lot better boundaries, and they protect their own sanity a lot better than we do. Um, and they say, actually, the most successful foster families are the ones who take one. They take one kid at a time. And the reason is because that child is totally absorbed into your family dynamic. You know, you don't have to, like, totally change. You should see our routines in our calendar. It's ridiculous, okay? Just off the charts ridiculous. That's just how it is to survive when you have a whole bunch of kids. Um, but, like, the families who take one or two, those, those kids are just totally involved and totally absorbed into the whole family dynamic. And so I have to add kind of an asterisk um, now when I talk about foster care and say, you don't have to be like us. <laughs> um, you probably shouldn't, actually. Uh, we tend to stick out quite a bit. We stick out everywhere we go. When we go out to dinner, which, by the way, never happens, because <coughs> there's 11 of us, and that's really just stupid. Um, we just don't do it. But when we do, um, you know, and we all, like, it's just a parade, and all the kids come by, and, and like, you notice. You just do. Um, you just do. And I, and I tell my wife, like, we would, we would stick out, and people would stare at us, I think, even if all the kids had the same color skin, which they don't. And that's a whole different thing, because we live in Grand Haven, right? Grand Haven, not exactly the beacon of multiculturalism on the lakeshore, right? It's just not. Let's just be honest. So, like, we stick out. And that's kind of how it goes. And so, I don't know, it's just, it's always questions, you know, is this a school group, are you guys on a field trip, what are you doing, um, my, my two youngest sons, my five-year-old son, um, he is African-American, and um, he's really dark skin, and so people generally assume he's from Africa, I don't know, that's just like a thing, and so they say, well, what country is he from, like, uh, Muskegon um, <laughs> is the country that he's from. I don't know, like that's, he's a local boy. Um, <laughs> I didn't notice how, how much um, that shaped us, I guess, until um, last year, just, just one more story to give you a little perspective, I'll get to the good stuff. Um, so we had another biological child. Um, so my kids right now are, we just had a couple birthdays, so let me see, they're 12, 11, 8, seven, seven, five, four, four, and eight months. So my daughter was born last year, um, and we took her Christmas shopping. My wife and I, we got a babysitter for the other eight kids, and we, um, we took her out Christmas shopping. We went out for dinner. We did Christmas shopping. And we went to the restaurant, and we had my infant daughter. She was a couple months old at the time in a car seat, and um, it felt weird. I mean, I mean, it always feels weird when we're out with, you know, less than five kids at any time, but um, it felt weird, and I remember I finally figured out what was so weird about that experience. I said, all of a sudden I realized, I'm like, look around. Nobody has given us a second look. 
nobody has noticed us. We are out, a husband and wife, with our one child. She has the same color skin as us. For all anybody here knows, we are a totally normal family. All of these people here think that we're just totally normal. And it was so weird to recognize that, um, you know, all, all of a sudden we had, uh, we could be anybody. We could be invisible and nobody would notice. Um, we had uh, people who, who hadn't seen us in a while, we would show up with a baby and they would just kind of assume, oh, look, you got another foster kid. I'm like, no, actually, we had this one the old-fashioned way, you know. Um, still open to that, you know, that's just... As far as anybody could tell, in that experience, in that day, it was like we could be totally normal. You've seen that? That's a bumper sticker, right? As remember, as far as anyone knows, we're a nice, normal family, right? Here's the thing about normal. Normal is based on our expectations, right? And our expectations are based on what we observe in the world around us. So smaller families are kind of normal today, probably four or less kids um, generally speaking. Multiracial families are not normal, although there are significantly more than, than there used to be. Think about, for your min think about a minute uh, your expectations of the world around you. Like, how do you define what normal is? In our foster care and adoption circles, we often say that normal is really overrated. Um, the world is not going to be changed by normal people, right? I believe the world, if you want to make a lasting impact on the world, if you want to impact generations, the last thing in the world that you want to be is normal. Because the world is a mess specifically because of attitudes and actions that are completely normal, right? Normal in the world is uh, jealousy, right? Selfishness, pride, lust, those are perfectly normal and even celebrated things in the culture around us, right? Those are normal. You want to get weird, try sacrifice. Try loyalty. Try patience. Man, those things are weird. So what's required for us as followers of God is to completely redefine what normal is. We need a definition for normal because uh, it, we need to root that in our behavior and what God is, not what the world around us thinks, right? There's a book um, called The Normal Christian Life. Have you ever read it? I think it's Watchman Nee, I think. Um, it's The Normal Christian Life. He says, what most people say they want to be is a normal Christian. He said, but what I think they really mean by that is I want to be a nominal Christian, nominal Christianity when I can just kind of, you know, be on the fringe a little bit. I can do the service. I can do the religious stuff, and that's fine. But, you know, don't, don't let it rock too deeply who you are. Normal Christian. And he says that's the last thing that a normal Christian ought to be. In order for us to do that, we need to understand who God is. What kind of God is God? Because uh, another one of my favorite authors, uh, Tozer, um, pointed out, he says, you know what, we tend to become like whoever we think God is. 
Whoever we think God is, is who we tend to become like. So if you believe that God is, you know, this uh, stern and exacting and harsh, you know, somebody who's all about punishment, kind of just waiting to squash us, if you think that that's who God is, then guess what? That's the kind of Christian you become. That's the kind of person you grow into. You become somebody who's a really polarizing uh, kind of Christian. If you believe that God is just kind of like, you know, laid back, no big deal, hey, whatever, then that becomes, that's the kind of Christian that you become. But what if, like, when we read the scriptures, what if these were given to us, among other things, to help us to understand who God is? What if the story here isn't so much our story? What if this isn't so much about us? And what if this is more about God and about who he is so that we can get to know him, right? What is God like? What makes him happy? What makes him sad? What if the Bible is, is, is uh, to be read in such a way as to help us understand who this God is that we were created for? Because I think that if we could read it in order to get to know him, I think we would find more direction to illuminate the kind of people that we should be. And if I could just paint with extremely broad strokes for a moment, uh, we know that God hates injustice, right? God hates injustice. We know that he hates dishonesty. We know that he is patient with, with us. We know that he is creative. We know that he's a giver. Words that describe God, father to the fatherless, right? Protector of the downtrodden, relief for the weary, he does not seem to respect our own estimates of ourselves, does he? But he sees every person's true worth. He doesn't put his own needs first, but he does everything in love. He's all-powerful, but he limited himself in Christ. He is all-knowing, but he gives us freedom anyway. And I think that a really good indicator of who God is would be to look at the kind of worship that he wants from us. He asks for more than just religious rituals, right? I mean, he's perfectly happy to oblige us with those, but he wants spirit and truth. He wants our hearts more than our money, and he wants our actions more than our words. Religion, according to God, involves both purity and action. He hates dishonesty, but he rejoices with truth. So if we were to look at the world from an understanding of who is God and who did he create us to be, the question is, is God the kind of God in our communities, in our churches, in our families, to say, hey, us four and no more? Or is he something else? I want to look at a few scriptures uh, in, in the Bible. We're going to look at a couple from the Old Testament and a couple from the New Testament. Um, and it, just to understand a little bit more of who God is and um, and how that shapes who we are. So Leviticus 19, first of all, all the way back, the book of Leviticus in the, in the law, in the Old Testament. And this is what God says to his people. He says, the alien living with you, um, 19 verse 34, the alien living with you must be treated as one of your native born. Love him as yourself. For you were aliens in Egypt. I am the Lord your God. So you've got this whole 
uh, group of people. You have this whole nation, and there are foreigners, there are aliens living among them. And he says, um, listen, the way that you're to treat them is to way exactly the same way as you would treat yourself, the same way that you would treat anybody else. Why is that? Because as part of your history, you used to be aliens in Egypt. You yourself were an outsider. You yourself were an outcast at one time in your life, and that should change you. That should change how you see the world, and it should change what you do and how you relate to other people, especially, especially it should change the way you relate to outsiders. Because that's who you were. It's not just their story. It's not just, hey, sorry about your luck. Try again next time. But it's, hey, your story is my story, and you and I are together on this. We see a God who is compassionate here, one who understands the plight of people around him. It actually, it sounds a lot like Jesus, doesn't it, if you think about it? He took on flesh. He became human. He walked among us. He lived out his life. Uh, He knows what it's like. He got hungry. He got tired. The Bible says he was tempted in every way just like we are. That's the kind of God that he is because God empathizes with us and he asks us to do the same. To the nation of Israel in the Old Testament, it looked like uh, looking after the foreigners among them. Treat them well, he says. Remember that that was your story. Remember that that was who you were and show them the same kind of kindness that you need. In Isaiah, Isaiah chapter 1, verse 17, this is um, in the prophets when God, man, the, the, in the prophets, God offers a lot of um, corrective kind of instruction, and this is, this is a significant one. In, in chapter 1, verse 17, he says, learn to do right, seek justice, encourage the oppressed, defend the cause of the fatherless, and plead the case of the widow. We, we find texts that talk about um, widows and orphans, right? The widows and the fatherless. These are two categories of people that often go together in the Bible. And the reason is, these were people who had no protector. So in, uh, the, in ancient society, which was very patriarchal, yes, definitely male-dominated kind of uh, culture, but the father or the husband um, was really the protector, and the provider for that family. If you didn't have either of those things, then you could be considered very vulnerable. Right? You, you can be a very vulnerable peer person. And so I, I think, who are the vulnerable people around us? Right? Who, who are the people who are the most helpless? Because I believe that God has a special place in his heart for um, the person who has no other alternative, right? The person who has nowhere else to turn, the person who has no way of protecting themselves. I think that's why the orphans and widows stuff comes up in the Bible so much. It plays such a prominent uh, role in God's view of justice. The, um, this, this text, actually, in Isaiah um, I, we kind of dropped in in the middle of it, but uh, earlier in chapter 1, if you look back even at like, um, like verse uh, 12, 
people were coming to God in, in religious rituals, and, and he says, when you come to appear before me, who asked this of you, trampling my courts? Stop bringing me meaningless offerings. Your incense is detestable to me. Ooh. <laughs> yeah. You read that, you're like, whoa, God is ticked. What happened? He says, I cannot bear your evil assemblies. Remember, these are not, like, when God says these are evil assemblies, he's talking about the rituals and the festivals that he prescribed in the Old Testament. Okay? These were festivals that God said you should do, and the people are doing them, and he says they're evil. And um, he says the uh, appointed feasts my soul hates. They become a burden. I'm weary. This is why in verse 15 he says, You spread your hands out in prayer. I hide my eyes from you. Even if you offer many prayers, I will not listen. Your hands are full of blood. The people are coming in worship, but it's making no difference. No difference at all in their lives. They're nominal. They want the festivals. They want the feasts. They want the religious kind of attitude, but at the end of the day, it makes no difference in who they are and in what they do. And God says, look at me. You want to lift up hands in worship? Great. Wash them because they're full of blood. Take your evil deeds out of my sight. Stop doing wrong. Learn to do right. Seek justice. This is where we come back in verse 17. Seek justice. Encourage the oppressed. Defend the cause of the fatherless and plead the case of the widow. Worship is not just about the music that we sing, right? It's about justice. It's about mercy. It's about who we are. The image here is of people who would approach God in worship but wouldn't change the way that they looked at the world or the way that they did anything. What God is looking for is a perspective that's changed not just a religious ritual that's carried out. We'll go to the New Testament now. Ephesians 1, um, chapter 1, verses uh, 4 and 5. Understanding, trying to understand who God is, what kind of God is he, how does he operate. Um, this gives us another little insight. In uh, verse 4 it says, For he chose us in him before the creation of the world to be holy and blameless in his sight. In love he predestined us to be adopted as his sons through Jesus Christ in accordance with his pleasure and will. What kind of God is God? Listen, he's the kind who adopts us not because of what we've done. God adopts us into his family not because of who we are. Who you are does not determine your worth or your value to God. It doesn't. We think that it disqualifies us. We think that our own personal worth or our own personal failings or shortcomings, you think that I am somebody who is less worthy, and, I, and, and it's so easy for us to think that disqualifies me from being part of what God is doing, but it doesn't because it doesn't make, it does not depend on you. It depends on who God is says he predestined in love. He, he did this before the creation of the world. He had determined that he would do this because of who he is. Before we were considered worthy, before we had earned it, as if that was possible, before we ever said to him, God, you're right, I'm sorry, and I'll follow you from now on. Before any of that, God had decided to adopt us into his family. 
See, we were once lost, right? We were once fatherless. And God changed that. One more New Testament text in James chapter 1. <clears throat> if you're familiar with James 1.27, you knew I was getting there eventually, right? Religion that God our Father accepts <clears throat> as pure and faultless is this, to look after orphans and widows in their distress and to keep oneself from being polluted by the world. There it is again. Orphans and widows. It's purity and it's action, right? And in James, we see kind of a balance of those two things. I think it's interesting. A lot of times we tend to focus on one of those things over and above the other. Like um, sometimes we get the idea that religion and its primary uh, exercise is to keep uh, purity and so we have to um, withdraw from the world because the world is a dirty place and keep kind of these tightly cloistered uh, religious communities. But the problem is uh, with this is that if we do that, if we withdraw, then how hard is it to take action, right? James says it's, not, it's just as much that religion um, is about purity as much as it is active, it's about doing something in the world. It's uh, the orphans and widows thing again. And it's like the measurement of justice from God's view of a people is not how much, how well you dispense justice to the powerful. It's not how well you dispense justice to the people who can do something or who can, uh, you know, seek it for themselves. It's how well you dispense justice to the people who are the most vulnerable, the people who have no influence, the people who have no other um, opportunity. Orphans and widows in the, in the scripture, not only are they vulnerable, but they're the people who can do the least for you, right? They're the people who can do the least. Think about what you get back um, from an orphan or from a widow, like, like helping those who can help you. That's kind of the American way. But what do you get um, for helping the most vulnerable. We had <coughs> one of my previous ministries, we had a, a ministry of um, doing programs and things in nursing homes, right? Because we learned that more than half of nursing home residents get zero visitors. Did you know that? More than half, nobody. And you ever hung out in a nursing home? It's depressing. It's seriously, it's, it's really depressing. If you have a loved one there, like when you leave them every time, it's like, oh man, it's just, it's hard. And um, so seeing that, um, we, we had uh, a ministry of going and visiting. You know what they can do for you? Nothing. You will get nothing, I mean, from them uh, in, in terms of what they can do for you to repay your, your kindness or whatever. Like, th you, you can't. And it is actually good for your soul to go and do something for someone who can give you nothing in return. It is good for you. It is good for your faith. It is good for your soul to uh, give to someone who can absolutely, positively never, ever repay you. Religion is not a path to power. It is not a path to influence because Jesus turned all that on his head, didn't he? What did he say? He said, whoever wants to become great among you, servant, right? Become the least. That's God's economy. And so we understand who God is, and, and we, look for, we look for clues and we look for help in the Scripture to understand who God is, and we become changed. And that's the point, I think. 
that we become changed because God calls us to, uh, to things and, and those things have a way of changing us and changing our perspective. Have you ever had your perspective on the world changed? Have you ever had your perspective just totally changed kind of in a moment? I'll give you the example of um, having your house broken into, right? Because if you leave your house and you've gone for years and everything is secure and everything is fine and then you come back one day and somebody has broken in and uh, vandalized or stolen things, all of a sudden, guess what? Your perspective on the world has changed because now every time you leave that house, you're going to wonder, is it safe? Every time you're going to wonder if I'm going to come back and find things the way that I left them, right? Like you start to look at the world differently. You start to assess threat. You start to uh, assess uh, risks a little bit more, right? You believed that the world was a certain way, but now your belief has changed and it has changed the way that you look at the world. Because of who God is and because of the way that our world is, there is a different normal. There is a different normal than what we might ordinarily think of. And, and what if normal changed for us? And what if normal is actually multiracial? I think I, I, in a lot of ways we're headed there, actually, which I'm super excited about. Not in Grand Haven. Not yet. But what if that's normal? You know? And what if it changed the way that you see the world so that when you see kids lined up at a bus stop or you see kids playing on a playground and you think, I wonder if all of those kids have a family. I wonder who looks after those kids. I wonder if all of those kids are cared for the way that they need to be cared for. Because guess what? Chances are they're not. Not every kid has a family who needs one. When we started, we got involved and we started understanding things like, um, I'm not necessarily a big statistics guy, but, you know, 450 kids in Muskegon County are in foster care. Okay? That's, that's a lot. Muskegon County is not that big. Um, there's about half that in Ottawa County. 210, I think, is the latest number in Ottawa County. Um, the state of Michigan is like top 10, 13,000-ish kids in foster care in the state of Michigan. Like, it's 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 huge it's a huge thing and so like understanding that understanding that some of the kids that your kids go to school with and some of the kids that your kids play on the playground with um they don't necessarily have what they need it changes our perspective doesn't it I mean, it just changes the way that we look at the world um our family ha- has definitely been changed. Like I said, um, um, five years we've been fostering. Um, we've had 30 placements in our home. We've had 30 foster kids come through our home in the last five years. Um, the need is significant. And I think about the way that my kids are growing up, which is totally w- different. And we've probably screwed them up very badly. And they're going to need lots of therapy. Um, my daughter was two when we started this journey, so like this kind of all she can remember. And a story that illustrates that very well is uh, the day that she was playing with her baby dolls, and um, she she had all her babies lined up, and she had their little blankets, and was getting them dressed, and was kind of fussing over the babies, which was a normal two-year-old girl uh, kind of thing to do, two or three years old at the time. 
And um, in the process of her game, at one point she said something. She made a comment that clued us in on what she was doing. She had all her babies, and she was getting them all ready for a visit from their caseworker. She's, she's like two or three years old, okay? That's her understanding of the world. And first I think, oh, man, we messed you up bad. Um, it was one of those kind of moments that was like, it was at the same time really beautiful and at the same time really tragic. You know? You know what I mean? Like, I love her heart, and I love that she understands that the world is a certain way. Um, but at the same time, and like, you shouldn't have to know, you shouldn't know that. That, that shouldn't be even a part of your thought process. That was just, yeah, babies have caseworkers. Of course they do. Every baby that's come into our home, as far as she knows, has a caseworker. They come and visit us every month. Um, that's, that's normal, at our house anyway. When, um, like I said, we, we had another baby last year, which is crazy. Um, and uh, not this last Christmas, but the Christmas before, we sat the kids down to tell them that there was another baby on the way. So m mom is going to have another baby. And um, my daughter, same daughter, who was, what, six at the time, and uh, she was very excited about the prospect of this. And she said, oh, that's so great. Can we adopt the baby? <laughs> I know. I know. I'm terrible. I'm a terrible parent. My kids are so messed up. Um, oh, terrible. The, uh, can we adopt the baby? That's her first question. So we had to work through that. We talked about biological and adopted. We had those discussions. When we talk about that stuff all the time at my house, it's not an unusual conversation, but so biological is what she called it. Um, at the time we had biological kids and we had adopted kids. And it doesn't matter how kids get to our home. It doesn't matter how they get here, whether it's through biological or through adoption. It doesn't make a difference. All that matters is that they're here, right? And so as long as a kid gets here, however they got here, it doesn't make any difference. And so like everybody understands that and everybody's good with that. But it's, you know, it's that normal question. And, th and so often we look at ourselves and say, that's just not normal. <laughs> So that's what I'm asking for today, is I'm asking us to change the way that we see the world, to redefine normal, right? Because hidden in plain sight, just beneath the surface, are there are families who are desperately struggling. There are parents who are trying to keep up. They're trying to keep their demons at bay. They're trying to keep a lid on their anger and their addictions, and they are losing. They are losing ground. Hidden in plain sight are the kids who are getting a really bad deal at home. And the only thing worse than that is the knowledge that some of those kids are going to get rescued from those environments, and it's going to be out of the frying pan and into the fire. Because I will be totally, 100% honest, foster care is a totally mixed bag. You do not know what you're going to get. I know some amazing, amazing people who are very selfless and who do what they do out of a divine calling that God has, has placed on them, and they give, and they give, and they give, and, 
and they are amazing, amazing families, and, and they struggle through attachment issues, and they struggle through all kinds of things with, with kids who are placed with them. But I know that there's other families, too. And I know that because those are the ones who make the news, right? There's always somebody who wants to make a quick buck off the states and thinks that that's a good way to do it. There are kids who are stuck in this perpetual limbo, wondering if they're ever really going to belong anywhere. A, a friend of mine um, is a um, prison psychologist. She works with sex offenders. And I think, whoa, that's a calling. <laughs> wow, lady, you're brave. Um, and uh, she would tell me, as we would talk about foster care, she says, I cannot even tell you how many times it has come up in group counseling sessions in the prison. The first time I was sexually abused was in foster care. She says, I wish I could tell you how many times I've heard that. And I believe that as a church, our response to that, there's, there's nothing that we can necessarily do about bad homes you know like they're out there I know they are and there's nothing that we can do about that however a church response a kingdom focused Christ-centered response could be to absolutely flood the market with really good homes you know the people who have the most to give who can give it because they know like Agencies know um, who they like to give kids. They keep us really full. As a matter of fact, we took a placement three weeks before my daughter was born last year, and we already had eight kids in the home at the time. And they called me. You're only allowed to have eight, by the way. You have to get permission from somebody in Lansing to have more than that. And um, they called and said, we need you to take a placement. I'm like, are you kidding me? Like, we're having a baby, <laughs> and we've already got some. Like... You want to, you want, I said, I, this is what I said to the licensor. I said, so you want me to call my wife who is about to give birth and ask her if we can take another child in our home? And they said, yes, that is what we would like you to do. Okay. So that's what we did. We took another one. So you have to be really desperate. Yes, we're super desperate. We have nowhere. I, I know, I know that they're out there. I know that Muskegon, we're we're licensed through Muskegon County, and they keep us really full, like I said. Um, the other thing that I know is that we're about done. Well, um, like I said, we have nine kids, 12 and under, in our home right now, and um, we're on an adoption track with the last three, and uh, that's going to shut us down. Like, that's going to close our license. There's no more foster care for the Steele family after that. Um, so one other thing that I like to say then is, so who's going who's gonna to step into that? You know, who's going to take that spot? Because um, I don't, I don't want to overinflate like our significance or anything like that, but, but we're a go-to kind of place where they know kids are valued and are going to be well taken care of. Is the church going to be the hope of the world or not? Are we, as the church, I don't mean the walls, I don't mean the building, I don't mean the seats and the stage. Are we, the people, the church, going to be the hope of the world or not? Because we fill the world with churches, but what are they doing in the world? 
And understand, please, I know I might be coming on kind of strong. <laughs> I don't want to be the issue guy, you know, the one that says, this is my issue, and if you don't follow this issue the way that, um, the way that I do, then you don't follow God. That's not what I'm saying at all. Please, please don't hear that. What I'm talking about is living your life in a way that is open to blessing the world around you. I do not have this figured out. It's not just about foster care. It's not just about adoption. It's about living your life in a way that models God's own heart, okay? Those are just two examples. And if you think about it, those are extensions of hospitality, right? Hospitality is kind of a big deal in the Bible. As a matter of fact, in Romans 12, and it, it talks about hospitality. It says, it says uh, 12, 13, share with God's people who are in need, practice hospitality. This comes at the end of a chapter that is talking all about worship, right? Romans 12, do you know how that begins? Offer your bodies as living sacrifices. This is your spiritual act of worship, it's not just about the music. It's not just about singing the songs. It's not just about the lyrics. I mean, those, that stuff is great. But worship is more than that, and it's about justice. Worship is about mercy. Worship is about following God's heart. So what kind of person will you be, and what kind of worship will you offer? The kind about living every day knowing who you are because of what God did in your life. This goes way beyond foster care. It goes way beyond adoption. It goes beyond orphans and neighbors and families and asks the question, who do you want to be? Because the foundation for us begins with God. The Bible says we were made in his image. It says it all the way back at the beginning, in the image of God. He created us. And so our goal in life, my prayer for you, is that your goal in life is not to be normal. God did not create you to be normal. He didn't. Some of you are like, good. Because that was never going to happen anyway. Right? God did not create you to be normal. He created you for something way better than normal. So what is it? Because of who God is, who will you be? I want to ask Pastor Bobby to come up and, and lead us and close us out with a song, and, and I just want to pray for us here before we're done today. God, I want to um, thank you for relieving us of the burden of being normal. Um, for some of us, that is a blessed release. Um, I pray that you light a fire in our hearts um, that, that burns for uh, who you are, that burns after your heart. Make our hearts more like your heart. Give our eyes the way that your eyes are. Let us see the world the way that you see the world. God, show us the places that we can make a difference. And it's not, I, 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 I struggle with this because I, I don't want to say, you know, making massive wholesale changes and is necessarily the thing, but maybe that is what you're calling somebody to. And that's okay. Maybe somebody needs to lay a whole lot of stuff down in order to follow you. Maybe some of us, we just have to be a little bit more open. Maybe we just have to see the world the way that you see it a little bit more so that we can get involved in the places that you're leading because we're just not listening very well right now. God, whatever it is, I pray that you move us whether it's one step or a hundred steps, I pray that you give us the faith and give us the courage to take them. 
God, because of who you are, change who we are today in your name. Amen.